Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are occasional bonus downloads where my co-host, Paul Bishop, or I get to hang out around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast campfire and spend some time talking with friends and writers who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is Western novelist and historian Melody Groves. New Mexico native Melody Groves loves Western history. Enchanted by the area where she grew up, as a youngster, she and her family explored ghost towns, which sparked her imagination. Horses, tumbleweeds, the sky, and characters who impacted the Western mystique charged through her mind. They still do. Winner of numerous writing awards, she writes for True West, Wild West, Enchantment Magazine, and New Mexico Magazine, among others. In 2018, she won the prestigious National Press Women Award for her True West Magazine article on Albuquerque's first town marshal, who got himself justifiably hanged. Her novels include Border Ambush, Sonoran Range, Arizona War, Kansas Bleeds, and Black Range Revenge. Her nonfiction includes Ropes, Reins, and Rawhide, all about rodeo from UNM Press, Butterfield's Byways, America's Longest Mail Route Across the West from History Press, Hoist a Cold One, Historic Bars of the Southwest, UNM Press, and Win Outlaws War Badges, her latest. She lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and in her spare time plays rhythm guitar with the Jammy Time Band. Thanks for reining in with us today, Melody. Thank you very much for uh, offering me a chance to uh, share the words of the West. So let's talk New Mexico ghost towns. You visited them since you were a kid. Uh-huh. Which ones are your favorites? And do you still have some that you want to visit or revisit, maybe? I I just love ghost towns. Um, yes, I certainly do. A couple of my favorites are here in New Mexico. Uh, Kingston comes to mind. They've got a, um, they still have a spit and whittle club, which was uh, very popular in the, during the gold rush and then the silver rush in the 1870s, 80s, 90s. And the spit and whittle club just fascinates me because when you think about it, these old men sitting around spitting and whittling and having a good time and no women were allowed. And then eventually women were allowed. And they were no longer allowed to spit or whittle. So I, I just think that's hilarious. But it's a really interesting old place. There are a few people who still live there. And um, they're just, they're fascinating. There's another town called Chloride, which is kind of on the other side of the mountains from Kingston. And Chloride has, oh, 15, 25 people living around there. But what they're most known for is they've got a um, big mercantile building which houses some of the original mercantile and they, they add to it on occasion also is the newspaper office, but in the middle of main street, they have their hanging tree where they sent more than one person off to uh, dispatched into the uh, other world there. So it's, it's a really interesting little town too. So these people live in these towns and then do they, uh, do they kind of make their living from the tourist trade or do they have, you know, do they kind of have a little bit of a community that they could live themselves? How does that work for some of these well, places? I think they have a little bit of both. Um, I have a feeling it's a lot of tourism. They don't really mine around there anymore. It's just not profitable. Uh, they do some ranching and farming, mainly, mainly ranching up in that area. Boy, that sounds—it sounds like fun. That sounds like a like a retirement job, doesn't it? To like, oh, it it, it does. It, it's wonderful and. Part of my writing is when I go to these ghost towns and I have, well, not as a kid, but definitely later on, 
I tend to lean against the buildings or at least feel them. And it looks really odd, but I kind of uh, can sense history that way. I can feel people talking and walking and building uh, the buildings. And I just, you know, I connect with it. Here in Albuquerque, we've got Old Town, which was the original Albuquerque. And some of those buildings, there's one wall that dates back to the 1700s. A lot of the original buildings from the 1860s, 1870s there. So for periodical writing, when you're writing an article, uh, be it ghost towns or, or anything, how do you decide what to write about or what you're going to write about next? Do you have some markets that give you assignments or do you pitch articles? Uh, actually, I do. I have uh, Wild West Magazine and True West Magazine both give me assignments. They see something that they like. As a matter of fact, my most recent nonfiction book, When Outlaws Wore Badges, the editor of Wild West Magazine read the first chapter about Milton Yarberry, who was the town marshal here, and got himself hanged. And so he asked me if I would write an article for, I believe it's, it's the December issue uh, this year about Yarberry. So I like it when they come to me and say, hey, could you, would you write this? Uh, we really like it. And uh, True West is, is doing that with me also. But as far as finding what to write about, I look for the really odd and bizarre because everybody's written about, it seems like everything in the West, you know, we've all done Billy the Kid, which I'm working on right now. But, you know, some of the, the usual suspects are out there, but things like I just discovered that during the post-Civil War, during the Civil War and afterward, they used wicker caskets because so many people had been killed and the wicker was lighter to transport and they didn't need the kind of wood that they did for the coffins. So I'm going to, going to propose an article on wicker caskets to um, both of these Western magazines and see which one they prefer, you know, which one will bite first. So I, things like that that I think are just really interesting. And I discovered in reading, I've been doing, like I said, a lot of research on Billy the Kid, who is my outlaw, but we'll talk about that later. In 1872, there was a huge equine influenza outbreak. And it cost, oh, it was just horrendous. Um, everything stopped. It was in the fall. And it started in Canada and swept west to where in December, it hit the west coast, even went down as far as Central America, and of course, Canada. And the, the horses, only 10% died, but they were too sick to work. It's like, you know, when we have the flu really, really badly, and it caused a depression. It caused a run on banks. There's a picture that I've, I've got to find again of people in New York with a um, streetcar. And there's a bunch of people on the streetcar and it's being pulled by other men. And that directly affected the Indians during the, the Plains Wars in the 1872 because there were no horses. So I just thought that was amazing. And Wild West has picked that up. They want They want me to write an article. I just haven't done it yet. That's just fascinating because, it, you know, imagine if we suddenly couldn't drive, uh, like if 10% of our cars just stopped and the rest were sluggish and didn't run, I mean, right. it would be terrible for us. And Right. And it, it even caused some political problems because that was during the election or re-election of Rutherford B. Hayes and people couldn't get to the polls to, to amend, couldn't get to the polls to, uh, to vote. Sure. So it was causing all sorts of problems. So that's kind of neat, that that unsung history that we don't think about, or maybe we've just, it got overlooked and it's not 
considered important or as important as, as something else. So that's wonderful to find those, those things and expand on them and see how they did affect the economy at the time. They may be more important than we think. Well, yeah. 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 You know, you think about if, if all of our vehicles uh, suddenly, like you said, they're suddenly dead, but um, now what do we do? So uh, why, why do you say Billy the kid is your outlaw? Well, because I grew up in southern New Mexico, right outside of uh, actually about a mile from Mesilla, where oh. Billy was tried. And as a kid, I just thought he was an amazing guy. I mean, how romantic hero. I thought he was an interesting guy. And then as a Old West reenactment gunfighter, we were a couple of times reenacting the, the killing of Billy the Kid. And I just feel such a, an attraction with him. And then I went to a place called uh, Puerto de Luna. We did a, it's, it's a little tiny town uh, near oh, um, Santa Rosa where Billy used to go. But there's a, a, an old store there. And we, were, we did a gunfight there. We were, we were the entertainment for a motorcycle rally. But there's this store that was the mercantile store. And that's where Billy the Kid ate his Christmas dinner the, of 1880 before he died. When he was being arrested, when he was arrested and uh, was on his way to uh, Las Vegas to take the train down to Mesilla. But this is an old, old, old building that's on the uh, historic registry. And you could just feel, you could feel Billy there. And as a plus, I think this is really cool. And I'm hoping you're as excited as I am. The first time we went there, there was an old man standing on the porch. I mean, he was old, old. And I got to talking to him, and he said that his father remembered Billy the Kid coming to dances there. Wow. I am so close to history. I'm touching history. Yeah. It was just, it was fascinating. It suddenly does come alive. It's like, wow, somebody who actually knew somebody who knew Billy or who saw him. It's a whole different experience. It is. It's close enough to touch. And of course, I roamed through the the building. I've been through it, I think, three times now and leaned up against it and talked to it and did everything I could to, to become one with the building. And I know that sounds bizarre, but it works for me. So I just learned through Amazon that you had participated in the reenactments. And I, I've seen a couple in, in my life. I've been present at a couple like old shootouts and, you know, downtown shootouts and that sort of thing. But how right. did you get, how did you get involved with that? Was that kind of something that, that you, you sought after or what, did it just happen and you fell into it or what? No, I actually sought it out. I have always loved the old West. I have always felt a connection to it. Always, always, always. And there is a group here in town called New Mexico Gunfighters Association. And they've been around, or I should say we've been around since 73, I think it was. And they perform in Old Town. Used to be every Sunday. And I think now they're like every other Sunday. But we do three or four shows every Sunday in Old Town. And just to see the delight on the visitors' faces was just delightful. But I got to play the, the the dumb sheriff. I got to be the dumb deputy. I got to be the bad guy. I I loved walking down the street with my posse. I got to be the harlot with the heart of gold. I got to be the hussy wife. I got to be all sorts of things. I, um, I was in it for 10 years. And it got to the point when I have a, uh, 
single action Ruger that I just love. It's it's my favorite gun in the whole world. But of course, we always use blanks, but you can still get hurt with blanks. And, and I did a couple of times. But my policy in my character, for example, in one of the shows, I was supposed to shoot once and then die. Well, one time I got hit with some wadding in my face and it hurt. So I emptied my gun. And then my other theory is that if I shoot once, I have to clean the gun. I might as well shoot all six. Let's just get it all done. And and the audience likes the more smoke and noise, the better. So because of that, though, we went all around the state performing and and they still do. I, I stepped out a few years ago, mainly because when I would hit the, the ground, I didn't mind. I You know, I learned how to, to die pretty quickly. I would hit the ground or the asphalt pretty easily. And I didn't mind lying there in the sun or in the cold or whatever, in the rain. But getting up became hard as I got older. So I thought, here I am, this big, bad, you know, sheriff or whoever lying on the street. And now I need help up. This just isn't working for me. So it got a little embarrassing. But um, I think, like I said, we, we learned in the summertime, especially when you're shot and you fall in the asphalt, you can either slowly roll in the shade towards the shade if you can find it. Or we always wore like five layers of clothing. We always wore these heavy coats. And people would ask, well, aren't you hot? Uh, no, I'm not burned is what it is. <laughs> We've even uh, performed at um, birthday parties. And that was an interesting experience. This one, we're out here on the West Mesa. We, when we, we didn't pay a lot of attention to the backyard. It wasn't landscaped. We've fallen into nice shrubbery and things like that, which the owners didn't like. But this particular time, we were out in the, basically on, in the desert. And when we fell, we all fell into the briar patch, into these stickers. And it took us hours to get all the stickers removed from our clothes and our, our hands. And we were not happy. I'll bet not. So you've always loved the West. You grew up with the West. Did you think when you were a kid that you would be a writer? Not really, but I did like to write when I was young, all the way through school. I was uh, journalism. I was the editor of the junior high newspaper. I was on the staff at the high school. I was a journalism minor in college. So I hadn't really set out to be a writer, but I think I did all along. I just didn't know it. It was just kind of there and it, uh, and it worked out that way. Uh-huh. But you have, along with nonfiction work and the essays and the articles, you're also an acclaimed novelist. When, mm-hmm. when did that start? You know what was interesting? I usually write both genres at the same time. For when I get tired of one, I switch to the other. But I was teaching middle school. I was teaching sixth grade English. And I kept having these voices in my head that were not my students. And it turned out it was a couple of guys sitting on my shoulder, Western guys, telling me that I needed to write their story. And I know that sounds really crazy for those of us who are not writers, but they kept talking to me and talking to me. And finally, I said, okay, fine. Look, I'll sit down and start writing. And so my first book came out like that. I had these two brothers who had this adventure and I just, it went from there. And those are the the Colton brothers? The Colton brothers. Yeah. Which of your fictional series and novels are your favorite? What was the most fun to write? Well, I'm thinking she was sheriff. Definitely. It's not part of the Colton brothers series. She's um, going, I think she's going to be a trilogy. The second one is coming out next spring, but she was sheriff. 
It's set in 1872. It's a woman who becomes a sheriff. She is a spinster. It's a little tiny town in California, no less. And the, the town council, the three, what we call the three wise guys, decide that nothing's going on and they need more money because they're all business owners. They need more money. So why don't we get this spinster who's not doing anything? Why don't we get her to be sheriff? And nothing ever exciting never goes on. But why don't we get this woman to be sheriff? And then people will come into town to see her and then they'll buy stuff. So that's what happens. And so she's like, well, I'm not sure I want to do this. But then her dad, who's the bank president, goes, oh, you can't. She goes, yes, I can. I hear her voice. And a lot of me is in there, I think. I wanted to spin that off into some nonfiction articles about, well, the first woman sheriff. I couldn't find one. It's few and far between. Your latest book is called When Outlaws Wore Badges. And stuff about good guys who might not have been so good. Please tell us a little bit about that. You know, again, it's one of those, I'm not exactly sure how I got the idea. I had apparently at some time got to thinking about some of the outlaws I knew, and I was surprised to find they had been sheriffs and deputies and people of the law. So I started looking into it, and then I was at a Western Writers Convention, and I went to the two-dot editor and said, hey, I have this idea. And she went, oh, absolutely. So I wrote it up, and as I say, the rest is history. It was supposed to come out last September, did not come out until April. But I started looking at outlaws and lawmen who walked that line, sometimes the blue line, what I call, and sometimes they had feet in both at the same time. This guy named Bert Al in um, Wilcox, Arizona. He was not the smartest bulb in the, the lot, but he was not afraid of anything. And so he had become the sheriff of Wilcox, Arizona, but he was also into robbing trains. He knew this one train was coming in that was loaded with payroll. So he came up with this idea. He and his buddies would be in this saloon back in the back in the special room playing poker. And he told everybody around, he goes, no, this is a serious game. You're not allowed to come in. Told the bartender, only come in with our drinks. We want you to come in and come out, but nobody else, nobody's allowed in. They would have drinks. And then eventually, while the door was closed, they went out the window and robbed the train, hid the money, came back and through the window, and they're sitting there playing poker. And the engineer comes screaming into town says, help, I've been robbed. My train's been robbed. And they said, well, we should get the uh, sheriff. Oh, we can't get the sheriff. He's in this poker game. No, you have to get the sheriff. No, he's in this poker game. So finally they said, okay, okay. Yeah, maybe this is important enough. We'll go ahead and interrupt the sheriff. Well, then the sheriff jumps up and he goes, I'm outraged that somebody robbed the train. So he's looking at all of his buddies who just came back from robbing the train. He goes, I'm going to deputize you, 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 and you. Let's go. So they rush out. And they spend all night looking for the robbers. They ride back into town the next day, totally dejected, so sad. We couldn't find the robbers. Oh. (laughs) Brilliant. Oh, yeah. You know, it is, really. (laughs) (laughs) That's a case where uh, the truth is a better story than anybody could have written at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. really great. So who were some of your inspirations growing up? Who do you who did you emulate when you were first starting out? Oh, as writing, um, probably I, I looked at Louis Lamore, McMurtry, Lonesome Dove. But what really inspired me was TV westerns. That's where I got this idea in my head about westerns. And 
of course, being in southern New Mexico, my very first boyfriend came over on his horse. And my dad had a friend on a horse that was 18 hands high, which is big for a horse. So I was around horses and the West a lot. My dad always wore a Stetson. We lived in a pecan orchard. So it wasn't a ranch, but, you know, we had ranch-like things or farm-like ideas. You know, you picked up the pecans and, but I just, I don't know. There's just something about the Old West that I just love. That combination of real world Western experience along with what you see on TV and or read about in a book is is really great, I think. It teaches a kid early on, you know, what's real and what's not and and sort of how things are exaggerated, but it really helps you then later on when you write your own stuff. That's one thing about being a gunfighter has really, really, really helped me. And I I use it, the experiences all the time. The whole idea of standing there pointing a gun at somebody and, and today's society, that's not a good thing. I know, but I know what it feels like to have somebody point a gun at me. Now, I also know that there's blanks in there, but you can die from blanks. And it, like I said earlier, it does hurt. But I know what it feels like to be in a gunfight. The adrenaline is real. One time in um, Tombstone, we were doing, it was really cool. They have a gunfighter rendezvous in um, October, I think it is, in uh, Tombstone for the, the big shootout there. And there's a, a group that performs like five shows a day in the OK Corral. But they were so sick to death of doing it. They asked us if we would. And we said, are you kidding me? This is like the, the mecca for gunfighters. And to be able to do your show, are you kidding? Of course we will. So I got to play Morgan Earp, which was exciting. But the place that we play in is about the size. Actually, it's a little bigger than the original place that they, the gunfight actually happened. But what happened in one show was the guy who was playing Doc Holliday got a little excited. And he started shooting before he was supposed to. Well, it caught us off guard, which, and it caught the other guys off guard too. So all of a sudden we find ourselves in the middle of this gunfight going, wait a minute, I still have lines. Hello. But then there was so much smoke and so much dust. I could not see who I was aiming at. I couldn't see them. So I thought that's about as realistic as it gets because that's, that's really how it works. So what did you do? Did you just... Kind of aim and shoot. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, since we, you know, we had blanks and, and the people who were supposed to get killed did, they died. And, and of course, being Morgan, I got shot in the arm. And so that was, that was pretty fun. But, you know, it, it really gives me a good sense of what it felt like back then. And so I put that into my writing because I know it. That's fantastic. Melody, I'm going to wrap up here by pointing people to your website and social media presence. Do you, do you have a website that, that is your I, writer's website? I do. It's melodygroves.net. And you're also available on Facebook? Yes. Thanks for being here today, Melody. It was a great pleasure to talk to you and make your acquaintance. Thank you very much. And and I really appreciate all the uh, time and people who read good Westerns. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, Keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.